Welcome, everyone. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, Head of Literature and Spoken Word here at Southbank Centre, and what a thrill it is to welcome you to the Royal Festival Hall, a space fit for a celebration of, momentous Tudor, of a momentous Tudor trilogy which began with another memorable hall. It is 11 years since Wolf Hall was first published and Thomas Cromwell started his unlikely rise from the humble origins at the mercy of his father's fists in Putney to the tumultuous heart of power in Tudor England. In that time, Hilary Mantel has dazzled readers and critics alike and redefined the scope of historical fiction. In her hands, knowing how the story must end only serves to increase the tension as historical figures take on hauntingly human dimensions, rendered with sinuous physicality and indelible precision. In prose that shimmers with lyricism and crackles with wit, Mantel has plumbed the depths of a nation in a state of perpetual reinvention, revealing the political, ancestral, and ghostly forces which continue to define it to this day. And in a world where everyone is called Thomas, each of them, each of them is as distinct as the other and lingers long in the memory. As the trilogy has unfolded, it has, un has, it has, it has sparked a cultural phenomenon, from award-winning adaptations and not one, but two Booker Prizes, to a surfacing of Thomas Cromwell in perhaps more unexpected places, like yesterday when I saw a little boy dressed as Minnie Cromwell for World Book Day. <laughs> See Twitter for a Minnie Holbein portrait. Beyond the Cromwell trilogy, if you haven't already, I urge you to explore Mantell's extraordinary range of work, from another historical epic, Place of Greater Safety, to my personal favorite, An Experiment in Love. Tonight, we celebrate the magnificent finale of the trilogy, The Mirror and the Light, which is every bit as thrilling and funny as the reviews are saying, and once again surpasses expectations. It's also an ideal way to self-isolate over the coming weeks. We will begin with brief readings from the first two books, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, read by two terrific actors, Joss Porter, who played Richard Cromwell in the BBC adaptation of Wolf Hall, and Hannah Steele, who played Mary Shelton. After this, Hilary Mantel herself will take to the stage to read from the opening of The Mirror and the Light, and then we'll be in conversation with journalist and broadcaster Alex Clark. A regular chair here at Southbank Centre, Alex is also a regular contributor to publications including The Guardian, Observer, and the TLS and programs such as Front Row and Open Book. To those of you who've sent questions in in advance, many thanks. Unfortunately, we won't have time to ask all of them, um, but a selection of these will be put to Hillary towards the end of the conversation. Whether you're a regular at Southbank Centre or this is your first time visiting us, we have a packed year-round program of literature and spoken word events and are home to the National Poetry Library, the largest collection of contemporary poetry in the world, and it's free to join. If the National Poetry Library had been around in Thomas Wyatt's day, perhaps he would have found a safe haven there from the ravages of London life. There are also a host of fabulous events happening at Women of the World Festival over the weekend, including a celebration of the great Toni Morrison in the Queen Elizabeth Hall at sun on Sunday at 2 p.m. From one kind of linguistic artistry to another, 
I want to thank our speech-to-text and British Sign Language interpreters tonight for rendering every word of the conversation with Cromwellian swiftness. We do kindly ask for your kingly forbearance if there is an occasional misstep, as the textual interpretation is typed by a human and not an algorithm. Huge thanks to Sharon Thind, Adele Ward, and Adele Ward from Performance Interpreting for BSL, and Orla Pearson from Stage to Text. The hour has come. Please welcome to the stage Hannah Steele and Joss Porter to begin the evening with readings from Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies. Thank you. Wolf Hall. Thomas Cromwell is now a little over 40 years old. He is a man of strong build, not tall. Various expressions are available to his face, and one is readable. An expression of stifled amusement. His hair is dark, heavy, and waving. And his small eyes, which are a very strong sight, light up in conversation. So the Spanish ambassador will tell us quite soon. It is said he knows by heart the entire New Testament in Latin, and so as a servant of the cardinal is apt, ready with text, if abbots flounder. His speech is low and rapid. His manner assured. He is at home in courtroom or waterfront, bishop's palace or inyard, he can draft a contract, train a falcon, draw a map, stop a street fight, furnish a house and fix a jury. He will quote you a nice point in the old authors, from Plato to Plautus and back again. He knows new poetry and can say it in Italian. He works all hours, first up, last to bed, he makes money and he spends it. He will take a bet on anything. Sunday, 1st of September at Windsor. Anne kneels before the king to receive the title of Marquess of Pembroke. The garter knights in their stalls watch her. The noble ladies of England flank her and the duchess having refused and spat out an oath at the suggestion, Norfolk's daughter Mary bears her coronet on a cushion. The Howards and the Boleyns are on fete. Monsignor caresses his bear, nods and smiles as he receives murmured congratulations from the French ambassador. Bishop Gardiner reads out Anne's new title. She is vivid in red velvet and ermine, and her black hair falls virgin style in snaky locks to her waist. He, Cromwell, has organized the income from 15 manors to support her dignity. A te deum is sung, a sermon is preached. When the ceremony is over and the women stop to pick up her train, he sees a flash of blue, like a kingfisher, and glances up to see John Seymour's little daughter among the Howard ladies. A war horse raises his head at the sound of trumpets and great ladies look up and smile but as the musicians play a flourish and the procession leaves St. George's Chapel, 
She keeps her pale face downturned, her eyes on her toes, as if she fears tripping. At the feast, Anne sits beside Henry on the dais, and when she turns to speak to him, her black lashes brush her cheeks. She is almost there now, almost there, her body taut like a bowstring, her skin dusted with gold, with tints of apricot and honey. And when she smiles, which she does often, she shows small teeth, white and sharp. She is planning to commandeer Catherine's royal barge, she tells him, and have the device H and K burned away, all Catherine's barges obliterated. The king has sent for Catherine's jewels so she can wear them on the projected trip to France. He has spent an afternoon with her, two afternoons, three, in the fine September weather, with the king's goldsmith beside her making drawings, and he, as master of the jewels, adding suggestions. Anne wants new settings made. At first, Catherine had refused to give up the jewels. She said she could not part with the property of the Queen of England and put it into the hands of the disgrace of Christendom. It had taken a royal command to make her hand over the loot. Anne refers everything to him. She says, laughing, Cromwell, you are my man. The wind is set fair and the tide is running from him. Bring up the bodies. These days are perfect. The clear, untroubled light picks out each berry shimmering in a hedge, each leaf of a tree. The sun behind it hangs like a golden pear. Riding westward in high summer, we have dipped into sylvan chases and crested the downs, emerging into that high country where, even across two countries, you can sense the shifting presence of the sea. In this part of England, our forefathers, the giants, left their earthworks, their barrows and standing stones. We still have every Englishman and woman some drops of giant blood in our veins. In those ancient times, in a land unspoiled by sheep or plough, they hunted the wild boar and the elk. The forest stretched for days. Sometimes antique weapons are unearthed, axes that wielded with a double fist could cut down horse and rider. Think of those great limbs of those dead men stirring under the soil. War was their nature, and war is always keen to come again. It's not just the past you think of as you ride these fields, it's what's latent in the soil what's breeding. It's the days to come, the wars unfought, the injuries and deaths that like seeds, the soil of England is keeping warm. You would think to look at Henry laughing, to look at Henry praying, to look at him leading his men through the forest path, that he sits as secure on his throne that he does on his horse. Looks can deceive. By night he lies awake, he stares at the carved roof beams. He numbers his days. He says, Cromwell, Cromwell, what shall I do? Cromwell, save me from the emperor. 
save me from the Pope. Then he calls in his Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, and demands to know, is my soul damned? The Queen wears scarlet and black, and instead of a hood, a jaunty cap with feathers of black and white sweeping across its brim. Remember those plumes, he tells himself. This will be the last time, or almost so. How did she look, the women will ask. He will be able to say she looked pale, but unafraid. How can it be for her to enter that great chamber and to stand before the peers of England, all men, and none of them desiring her? She is tainted now. She is dead meat. And instead of coveting her bosom, hair, eyes, their gaze slides away. Only Uncle Norfolk glares at her fiercely, as if her head were not a Medusa's head. The mirror and the light. Tower of London, May 1536. Once the Queen's head is severed, he walks away. A sharp pang of appetite reminds him that it's time for a second breakfast or perhaps an early dinner. The morning circumstances are new and there are no rules to guide us. The witnesses who have knelt for the passing of the soul stand up and put on their hats. Under the hats, their faces are stunned. But then he turns back to say a word of thanks to the executioner. The man has performed his office with style, and though the king is paying him well, it is important to reward good service with encouragement as well as a purse. Having once been a poor man, he knows this from experience. The small body lies on the scaffold where it has fallen, belly down, hands outstretched. It swims in a pool of crimson, the blood seeping between the planks. The Frenchman, they sent for the Calais executioner, picked up the head, swaddled it in linen, then handed it to one of the veiled women who had attended Anne in her last moments. He saw how, as she received the bundle, the woman shuddered from the nape of her neck to her feet. She held it fast, though, and her head is heavier than you expect. Having been on a battlefield, he knows this from experience, too. The women have done well and would have been proud of them. They won't let any man touch her. 
palms out, they force back those who try to help them. They slide in the gore and stoop over the narrow carcass. He hears their indrawn breath as they lift what is left of her, holding her by her clothes. They're afraid the cloth will rip and their fingers touch her cooling flesh. Each of them sidesteps the cushion on which she knelt, now sodden with her blood. From the corner of his eye, he sees a presence flit away, a fugitive lean man in a leather jerkin. It's Francis Bryan, a nimble courtier, gone to tell Henry he's a free man. Trust Francis, he thinks. He's a cousin of the dead queen, but he's remembered he's also a cousin of the queen to come. Hilary, thank you so much. I just Thanks, have to Alex. I have to ask you what it felt like to read those words in front of all these people for the first time after all this time, after not eleven years, but at least fifteen of writing. I feel a, a curious reassurance, uh, not only from Thomas Cromwell's point of view that Anne's head has finally fallen but also because what I've done through the trilogy is always settle the first chapter. And then having done that, then it's swimming into the dark. But those particular words were, were written a long time ago. And almost everything changes, but the beginnings never changed. That's interesting because that happened at the beginning of Wolf Hall for you, didn't it? When you wrote those first pages of Wolf Hall, and indeed you took them off to your publisher and you said, this is what I want to write. Um, yes. You described it, as you have described it, as just feeling like a moment that you felt like you knew that you had been meant to do this. You were writing something that was absolutely right for you. It was a long time ago, though, before that, that I, I'd thought of writing a novel about Thomas Cromwell. And it, it had been kicking around in my mind for years, frankly. But you, you have to be ready. Um, mm. Sometimes when you have an idea, that's not the time to carry it through. And I got to the stage where I was going to say to my publishers, Goodbye, I'll be back in five years. <laughs> and, it, you know, I wrote a long book at the very beginning of my career, which was a place of greater safety, mm. though it wasn't published first. And all the rest was all the rest. And then it was a question of at what point do I get off this escalator? And it was a, a slow moving and gentle but it was carrying me upwards to more readers each time. So where do you say, um, now I must 
interrupt uh, this gentle process. And then, of course, it struck me from a practical point of view. It was around 2005. 2009 was going to be the um, 500th anniversary mm. of Henry's accession to the throne. There were going to be huge national commemorations and it was a party and I couldn't be late to that party. So mm. it, was, it was time to go so you with gave Thomas yourself, After all these years, yes. you gave yourself a very strict, almost journalistic sort of deadline. Yes, indeed. And although the idea had been there, I actively held myself back from doing anything but the most cursory research because there is always a prospect that a project goes stale on you. And, and you have to, as it were, you have to rehearse, you, ha you have to get ready to begin. And when you do begin, something like this that you've contemplated for so long, that is quite a moment. Mm. And those words, so now get up, that began the trilogy. Mm. I didn't know it was going to be a trilogy then, but I knew it was going to be Thomas Cromwell's whole life, whatever that took. So immediately, I knew I had this situation. You've got the 15-year-old boy lying on the ground. All he can see is his own blood and he thinks any second I'm going to die. And that's the beginning and that's also the end, except 40 years have passed. And I knew that it was bookended and that those words, so now get up, will be in the air. Um, Cromwell being a character extremely unlikely to concede defeat. That's what the voice inside him will be saying. So now get up and start again. At every point through yes, his, through his yes. life. Um, and, and so that was how it shaped itself. And you might say it was done in an instant. <laughs> the whole thing envisaged, seen right through as if someone had flung open the doors down a very, very long corridor, and you could see a speck right at the end, but then, then came the intervening 15 years. Yes, then there, came was, the hard there were work. that 15 years. <laughs> Hilary, I, I met you 15 years ago. We were getting on a flight together, and you very um, courteously said to the group, there was a group of us, we were going off to Russia uh, to talk about books in a very far-flung part of Russia. Uh, and you said, I hope you, hope you don't mind. I just, I'm going to start on my, I've got work to do. I've just started a new book. It's about Henry VIII. And we all said, okay, of course, of course, see you, see you on the other side. And that was it 15 years ago. That's right. Um, so I, you were writing on planes. You couldn't I, be stopped, could you? I, I was reading and writing, and I particularly remember I, I, I was reading a book about William Tyndale. And I was trying to think how I was going to integrate that story mm. as he and Cromwell are never going to be on the page together. Mm. And um, yes, it was early days. And I, I'll tell you how I know, because I was feeling exceptionally robust 
because <laughs> I, I just acquired this indefeasible colleague, you see, in the shape of Thomas Cromwell, um, uh, who um, is, and I, I do recommend it, you, you know, make sure you have a robust character on your side if you're going to hang around with someone for this length of time. <laughs> and, and I suddenly got tremendously strong and vigorous and healthy. It didn't last, but I'm glad it lasted for as long as our trip to Russia, which was, was a pretty disastrous experience, wasn't it? Beginning well, if, with... if we say that we went to Russia, our luggage did not. Yes. That would be a, a reasonable way of introducing the topic. all our seminar notes um, and personal effects in our luggage. Mm. So we basically, I don't know what we did for three days. Muddled but through. We muddled through. We muddled through, and I think you, you at least had your, your book about William Tyndale. And I had a, a coat which I borrowed. <laughs> yes. But yeah. Hilary, I'm going to have to take you further back, in fact, because yeah. as, you, as you've said, you knew that you wanted to write about Cromwell yeah. and about that patch of history, even before you knew that you wanted to write about the French Revolution in a place of greater safety. And then, as you say, you got on an escalator elsewhere. What in the very first place made you want to write about it and what diverted you? Well, I think they probably came along at the same time, um, the two projects. When I started writing, I thought, I can do this, but I can only be your historical novelist because I have no idea how to make a plot, but history will do it for me. Um, <laughs> and what I didn't know then was about the gaps in which one would have to imagine and I turned into a novelist in the course of writing that first book. Um, and I thought, you see, life plan, um, I'll do this one, then I'll do Cromwell. And then it didn't work because I couldn't get a place of greater safety published. I couldn't even get anyone to read it. And wow. we're going back now to 1980. Mm. And I um, thought, well, my only way in is to do something that's completely different, short, contemporary, funny. I'll see if that will get me in at the door. If it won't, maybe this is not for me and I have to think again. Mm. But it did work. And the first book I had published, Every Day is Mother's Day, mm. uh, it had a sequel, Vacant Possession, by this time, I'd spent four years in Saudi Arabia, so that commanded a novel. And so I kept going. And as, as, I, as I had said, it's very difficult to know when you can draw back. But you see Cromwell, he was like, when I was going down the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. Oh, how I wish he'd go away. But it was quite obvious he wasn't going to go away. And at that point, 2005, mm. when I just finished Beyond Black, I caught myself on and I thought, now or never. Yeah, now is the moment. Mm. I mean, we just, just to be completely clear, those early books of yours, which, of which there are huge numbers of fans here, um, 
I mean, you're, you're not distancing yourself from those, are you? So you're not in any sense kind of disavowing those novels. No, when, when I talk about them like this, it sounds as if they were just instrumental. But actually, what I found when I moved to writing contemporary fiction was that I could do a whole lot of things that I hadn't known I could do. Mm. And that had its own fascination, and it took everything I could bring to it. And just last year, in fact, in Vienna, uh, they have this wonderful scheme where uh, they have a week when the whole city celebrates one book, and they give out thousands of free copies, and you have public discussions and so on. And they chose that first book every day as Mother's Day. And what I found, even talking to people in another country about that, was how topical it still was, yes. and yes. how much it still felt alive as a project. I think Muriel Axon was another unkillable character. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's very interesting to me that the moment at which you, as you say, you know, caught on to yourself and thought, now or never, did come directly after Beyond Black, which was a book, again, that has enormous fans, was fantastically well-reviewed. Um, you would think could hardly be more different. What a handbrake turn it is to go from Beyond Black to Wolf Hall. I don't really think so. I can see the kind of similarities between Alison and between Thomas Cromwell, and in particular, the idea of charisma, the idea of the constant walk among the dead. And is that fanciful of me to think that? Uh, Alison is a professional psychic, and she makes her living in the... Um, going around the M25 to psychic fairs, turning off to small dormitory towns, occupying a public hall, telling people's fortunes. They confuse fortune-telling with mediumship. She's ever ready to please. She does a bit of both. Um, <laughs> and Alison is... Um, the book's not about whether she's a charlatan or not. It's about her process. And it struck me, of course, that it's the economics of these trades that are important. Um, if you are an author or a professional psychic and you spend um, your life talking to dead people or people that other people can't see, if you get paid for it, that's all right. If, if you're an amateur, then you're probably given a diagnosis and locked away. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a lot of fellow feeling for Alison as mm. an author. Mm. And of course, when she gets home, she can't get rid of the dead. She's got to be fighting them off yeah. every minute. But what, the, what Alison says is when she... When she goes on stage and she's hoping a dead person can come through, what does she do? She says it's a silent, sensory ascent. It's as if she climbs to the top of a ladder. And when she gets onto the top rung, she listens very hard. And then the dead begin to speak. And I felt that I there I'd outline my process mm. with Wolf Hall. Uh, 
and the whole trilogy because for me it has been a process of yes curiosity energy always pushing forward but also being receptive and above all listening to those voices so you climb to the top of the ladder and then you just and then you listen. listen and of course we don't merely have Thomas Cromwell who comes to speak to you. The panoply of characters is absolutely immense. And each of them you take and you give us a slightly new spin on. I mean, the ones who are very well known to us, Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII, Thomas More, also become reborn in the entire well, trilogy. Well, because they? they're all being seen through Cromwell's eyes. Mm. And that is what makes these books different. And it's why you see these characters in a different light. Mm. At what point did you think, oh no, this is not going to be one book. Oh, this is going to be a trilogy, quite, quite early on. Quite late, actually. <laughs> um, and, you know, as I moved into telling the story of Thomas More's final days, uh, and I, with, again, I was listening to my own emotional processes, as it were. And something inside me was beginning to say, enough. And it, it wasn't to do with the number of pages. It was just to do with the fact that I think after this, my feeling was, we want to pause, we want to step back, we want to digest mm. what we've been told. A tragedy has been played out. You don't simply turn the page and on to the next beheading. So, <laughs> I, and then I moved into, and this makes me sound far more disorganized than I am. I moved into what I thought would be the second half of the story mm. and continued writing about Anne Boleyn. But when I came to those words, this command from the Tower of London, uh, to the Tower of London, to bring up the accused persons for trial. And I came to the words, bring up the bodies. And I thought, that is a title, and this is a book. And <laughs> I saw, once again, though it was considerably shorter, covered only nine months. Yes, it was a book. It was a discrete part of the story, and it must end there with mm. Anne's beheading. And it is, again, it sort of then requires a pause. I think so. Um, but as Cromwell says, no endings. They're all beginnings. Mm. We're already beginning to leap into the next phase of his life. It's a case of what's the next crisis. So, Hilary, approaching this final volume, which is the longest of the three, I think, isn't it? Uh, it is, yes. By it, some, it's, it's a chunky yes. book. <laughs> it, it's what I want to say to readers about this um, <laughs> is you're not reviewers. You don't have to rush. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to pay you. 
will not be paid to read it in 48 hours. <laughs> um, what you notice is that the book goes in sections, and each of those sections has three chapters. So they're mini trilogies within okay. the book. So each section, read it like a novel, because it's shaped like a novel. So you're and actually giving people a little reading guide to kind of approach it in a sort of friendly manner. I feel bound to provide some sort of <laughs> way well, of navigating it. That's not actually it. what I meant. I didn't, I didn't mean it's long in the sense that it's arduous, but I do know that during the course of its gestation, you have been thoroughly annoyed by people asking you whether you have writer's block or are too sentimentally attached to Thomas Cromwell to kill him off, aren't you? Yes. Um, I've I've been mildly annoyed. I've been, I've been <laughs> amused um, because I have been like a factory in constant production. I would go to the place where I write, um, sometimes nine in the morning, sometimes a little later if there was a lot of admin. Um, seven o'clock in the evening, my husband would come and pick me up I would be sifting, processing, writing the whole time. Um, and this has gone on for the last three years. Mm. Um, before that, I was really very absorbed on working with the stage productions. But that, and I always write anyway, like a collage. So I'd written a lot of material for different points throughout the book. But there does come a time um, when you have to go back right to the beginning and proceed consecutively. But then you're plucking it, things that you've already read and ordering them. You are, but mm. you have to connect everything mm. and you have to address those sections where you haven't done any preparatory work. And so this is the, the very systematic, committed day-after-day -day work, I yeah. think. Yes. And I, I felt well, as I say, amused by the idea that I was lying on the sofa fanning myself, saying, I can't <laughs> write. <laughs> um, and also, of course, the, the business of missing Thomas Cromwell, there's no time when that can happen because we move immediately into preparation for the stage production. And I noticed that already, when I want to think what's in the book and what I'm writing for the theatre, I can't work out which is which. And so the process for me has been seamless. Then there will be the TV series to come. What's interesting about that, of course, is that was not going on in your process as you started. So your process has changed because of the advent of the stage and the screen adaptations, hasn't it? Or it's been altered in some kind of way. I think I learned a lot by being in the rehearsal room and seeing the, the two-play shape. And it certainly strengthened my hand when I came to undertake this bigger and more complex task. Mm. Because the nature of this book is such that history thickens up around Thomas Cromwell. He um, has a crisis to face every day. 
and there is no department of government he is not involved in. As Queen Jane Seymour says, Lord Cromwell is the government and he is the church. Mm. And that sums it up. He's Henry's deputy in the church. The complexity of international and domestic events, the weight of documentation makes it a really major task and a complex one. And I'm not going to sell my reader short on complexity. I'm not going to sell them short on nuance. I'm not going to pretend it's easy when it isn't. And so if I got desperate, I would say, all right, supposing this was on stage and I have two actors and I'm going to allow them two exchanges each, how would I do that? Mm. And then when I had come down to that core of information that had to be imparted, I would then work it back, as it were, into novel form. And the other thing is that I found it quite profitable sometimes to actually storyboard a scene, because what I learned from the stage productions was how much it matters how characters are positioned in space, how it alters the power dynamics of a scene, and how a line that's delivered flat and zinging across the stage, as it were, is quite different from an exit line spoken casually over the shoulder. Mm. So I would think of the space my characters were occupying as a stage, move them around, draw them. And I got really surprising insights that way. And I thought, why haven't I always been doing this? But what happened as a result of working with the plays was that I got a chance to think again. At a late stage of my career, I went into the rehearsal room and I was a beginner. And I could watch other people working and profit from their insights. And a lot of things that the actors said to me or that emerged in rehearsal actually made their way into the third book. Well, you described when you, you know, first the, the, the plays were here and then you took them to Broadway and you went over to kind of, you know, help shepherd that onto the stage in America. And you were sort of working in the rehearsal rooms, weren't you? You were kind of taking notes in the rehearsal rooms. I, I, had, two, um, I had two books by me, one for the spectacle in front of me and any fixing that might need to be done there and then, then that day. And the other was the mirror and the light. Mm. And I was all the time moving between those two books. I just want to ask you how all this complexity, the actual complexity of the historical period that you're describing, the complexity of rendering that into a novel that we will be able to um, enjoy, read in its three chapter segments, um, and internalize in some way, which is obviously what people have done. You, you told me a little while ago that sometimes when you're teaching writing students, you just tell them to draw an arrow above their desks and follow where it points. 
So there's a kind of simplicity and a complexity. How on earth do you balance these two things? Yes, if you actually, if you read the Miranda Light, it looks as if I'm breaking all my own rules <laughs> and ignoring my own advice because it is, it is a book with loops, um, swirls of narrative. It has to act as a mirror to the novels that have gone before. There are all kinds of reflections, recurring themes, recurring symbols. But what is propelling us here? The arrow pointing straight forward. It's fate, if you like, mm. or the process mm. of history, or whatever you like to call it. So the reason I, I have said to people to draw an arrow and follow its flight is just propulsion, energy. Um, if, you, if you feel a book is, is going wrong on you, strip it down simpler and simpler. Um, to have a clear narrative line, I have to be an exception to my rule in this. <laughs> Book. Carrying a trilogy, um, the last well, the last book has to carry the first two books, not just the weight of information, but every story has to have its arc. Every pigeon has to come home to roost. Mm. Mm. Did you ever actually feel despairing? Did you ever think? I, the pigeons are everywhere. I have no idea how to get them back home. No, I never did because I went through that process with my first book. Um, with my French Revolution novel, there is a point in the autumn of 1793 when it is ne was necessary for me to explain to my reader an enormously complex stock market fraud, which turned into a scandal that was the beginning of the fall of uh, the Dantonists. And when I came to that point in the book, I thought, I will never, I will never <laughs> explain the East India Company fraud. And so ever since then, in my writing, when a problem of complexity has presented itself, I thought, I am the woman who explained the East <laughs> India Company fraud. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I may say there was a certain French revolutionary historian who wrote to me and said, how did you do that? Oh, <laughs> that's a very nice moment. <laughs> so in other words, when you were talking about getting ready, you know, feeling ready, some of it is about building up a certain amount of confidence in your own abilities and the ability to kind of really go the distance. I think with the third book, I, I did feel a surge of power when I began it. I think what had happened by that stage is that I was very familiar with the sources. It didn't mean that there wouldn't be things day by day that I hadn't foreseen, but I had a sense of knowing where 
to put my feet. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, there are things that can come along and throw you. And while I was, um, and of course, you see, the vast bulk of research never goes near the book. Yeah. And for every character who's in there, there are 20 who are not. They don't make the cut. And while I was writing this final book, Dermot McCullough was working on his big biography of Thomas Cromwell. We had many conversations, and it was very interesting to see how a historian worked as opposed to how a novelist worked. Because um, when I say to Dermot, where are you up to? He'd say, um, 15th of July, 1538, <laughs> five o'clock in the evening. <laughs> and, and where was I up to? I was up to a dozen different places. I was in Putney, I was in Florence, I was in London. Um, it's so different, but we were both contending with this great weight of documentation and, and this plurality of personnel. And I, I remember saying to Dermot, it would be convenient if there weren't two characters called Thomas Allen. And he said, actually, there are three. <laughs> <laughs> at that point, I simply had to bow to his superior expertise. <laughs> but none of them have to intrude on my narrative. No, exactly. They, the Thomases are an absolute plague. <laughs> <laughs> Hilary, tell us, so there you are, as you say, the, the, the second book, Bring Up the Bodies, is in a very finite time period, but it is a discrete story and you knew that ha that had to be the second book and that alone. Mm -hmm. You then pick up the story. Um, you've got a few years to go. Um, as you said at the very beginning, you know, you couldn't do plot. We, we might agree to disagree about that, but you said you couldn't do plot, but history would do that. You're telling us a story that we know the end of. Yes. And yet you've got to get there. In this final episode, what were the things that you had to do that you knew had to be there? Obviously, the reader... Um, of many readers who come to the trilogy. They think of um, the ray in terms of which wife are we up to. And yes. fair enough, you know, um, very many eminent historians have written books on the six <laughs> wives of Henry VIII. So I have to keep my wives going. Um, at the same time, Cromwell's story has a different shape. Oh. And that's my primary concentration. But, but, but I, did, um, I did set myself the task of bringing all six wives, not as wives, but as women, into the book. Mm. Mm. And I think that perhaps not every reader will find wife number six but those who do will be so pleased with themselves. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, uh, Thomas Cromwell is, you know, still so very much in the ascendancy. As yeah. we know, the downfall comes pretty rapidly, comparatively 
rapidly. Yes, very rapidly. Um, mm. You know, suddenly. Mm. But, but we know it's coming all the time. And it felt to me that what, one of the things you really wanted to do in this book and the whole trilogy was work out why. You referred to fate and the way that you link the beginning and the end of the mm. trilogy tells us that you think there is something to that. You do think Thomas Cromwell, his, the shape of his life was foredrawn in a sense. I don't think any total explanations of his fall are possible. It's certainly a lot more complicated than the idea, which is actually completely wrong, that Cromwell pushed Henry into a marriage that Henry didn't want. Henry wanted and needed the Cleves marriage very much as a military and trading alliance. The fact that the marriage went wrong caught Cromwell temporarily off balance, allowed his enemies to group and move in on him. Making common causes, perhaps they had not been able to before. But it was really strange how it happened because back in the April of um, 1540, his execution being the end of July, back in April, he thought he was down and out. Mm. And w we know this because in his house, uh, in his household, there were a group of what they call singing children. Um, they were the household choir. And he gave them all 20 pounds and sent them home to their families. And that is a man taking care of the most vulnerable members of the household because he's looking to a day when that household will be broken up. And then Henry turns around and makes him Earl of Essex. And the Cromwell family are riding high again. Mm. And what lies be behind this remains completely mysterious. But Henry was very fond of setting one set of councillors against another. And he probably saw the Duke of Norfolk and Stephen Gardiner and the French ambassador and all the people who were in the plot looking a little too complacent for his liking. So he knocked them down, exalted Cromwell again. But then he had a matter of weeks to enjoy his dignity of, as Earl and was arrested at a council meeting. I imagine that that day he knew very well what was coming. People ask, could this have been avoided? The international situation had drifted against him mm. in a big way, as I hope readers will understand. Um, it had caught him at a temporary disadvantage, nothing he couldn't have managed. Um, another few weeks, the situation would have changed again. But you see, people say, what mistake did he make? What flaw was there? Um, was he... I think if there were, he'd been too successful almost. Henry had allowed him to become too great a minister. 
But also I think there's something there from the beginning and it's structural. It's mm. not that he does wrong, it's that he is wrong. Mm. Um, unlike um, Gardner, he hasn't got the church behind him. Unlike Norfolk, he hasn't got a great pedigree, a great affinity, estates full of tenants. He is in every respect a self-made man. And he is climbing and climbing that ladder, a ladder which he's made himself a lent against the institutions of state. And when he gets to the top, there's no point of stability mm. and no one he can trust to hold the base of that ladder steady. One of the things that, that struck me when I was thinking about the ways in which he resembled Alison from Beyond Black was that they, at all points, were dealing with immense violence in their childhood and an immense sense of precarity um, and pain. Do you see that as part of what determined the course of Cromwell's life? Obviously, there's, as you're saying, other class aspect of it. Do you think the fact that his, his upbringing was so violent and painful was also part of it? I have to be exact here and say that his early life is a closed book to us. All we really know is that round about the age of 15, he left England and people at the time came up with different explanations like he would, but it, they usually involve running away from the law. And all he ever seems to have said to, about it, he, he is alleged to have said to Cranmer, I was a ruffian in my youth. The book of his life in that respect is extremely short. Mm. Mm. But you look at his, you look at who he recruits, the boys who've messed it up, the boys who've gone wrong, the people who need a second chance. And his father, Walter Cromwell, um, we know more about Walter than we probably should. Um, Walter was not a poor man. He was a man established in his community, but he was also a drunk. He was a neighbor from hell. He was summoned to court for assault. Later, and I think this is somewhat swayed historians unduly, he became a church warden. <laughs> but um, a reform Walter doesn't mean that it was always so. There's a puzzle as well around his mother. We don't even definitely know his name. We don't know if she died when he was born, but she doesn't seem to come onto the record. There's no record of his education. He certainly had never been near a university. Um, it's in many respects, but for the character of Walter, it's a blank. But and that cryptic statement. So you, you didn't allow it to be a blank because you did create Walter and you did create that opening. And that does underpin a very great deal of what we know and how we respond to Cromwell later. And it must have done for you as a writer. It's my best guess that mm. It, this, you know, it's not a family without connections. Even if your uncle is a cook, okay, that's not so great, but if he's a cook at Lambeth Palace, you've got an entree. Mm. Uh, and 
what I, I'm looking at, I think, is someone who grows up very fast and who, I suppose, also the Crucium episode, which is revisited in this book, the burning of the Lollard, which he witnesses. Now, that's a real person, Joan Borton. I've absolutely no proof that the young Cromwell witnessed such a thing, but times and places say he could have done. And I have implanted it as a sort of crucial episode when, as it were, a chip of ice enters his heart. And he himself revisits that episode in the mirror and the light. He's an arch repressor. He's a really expert repressor. But sooner or later, the demons come out of the subconscious. Do you mean he's repressing all through his life? I think so. From that moment, or, well, and you understand this is a novelist construction, from that moment when he witnesses the execution and he hides under the stand and the field clears and everyone has gone and he doesn't know, he's eight years old, he doesn't know how to get home or what to do and he's afraid to come out. So he crouches under the stand and he catches the icy drops of rainwater in his cupped hand and he swallows them and something inside freezes. And his insight in this book is that one boy went to the execution and someone else came home as if he'd done his growing up in that dreadful hour. Yeah. Hilary, one of the, one of the things that people often cite about the trilogy is how um, it is easy to respond to its immediacy because it is not garlanded with really arcane and archaic language that is there to choke us up uh, and slow us down with a lack of understanding. Um, when you talk about Thomas Cromwell in that moment, you are talking about a very sort of, uh, something that chimes with a modern sensibility of how things that affect us at a young age are things that will mark us hugely. And I just want to ask you about this juxtaposition of history and modernity and what your purpose was and your understanding of it when you started to write this work. Well, you have to remember, you see, it's not really such a modern sensibility because in, in those times, they believed that even what happened to you when you were in your mother's womb would make a mark on you mm. in later life. Mm. Um, but sorry, your question was... <laughs> Well, you, yes, you're right. They're, they're not things that we think of as very modern ideas are often far more deeply rooted in yes. further back history than, than we kind of allow mm. them to be, I suppose, because we want to think we've invented everything. Um, but that idea of presenting something as, in, in essence, a modern story, did that, was that something that you had very clear from the start, that that's what you wanted to do? I think rather than being a modern story, it's a universal story. Mm. Because I think you find Cromwell's in all times and places. Um, wherever there's a hierarchical structure, 
but the possibility of working outside it. You'll find a Thomas Cromwell. You'll find him in politics. You'll find him in armies. Um, you'll find him in the mafia. Um, and I think it's a story that we all recognize. As far as the language to tell it, I aimed to have an inflection of the time. And one of the things that I work hard at doing is taking a Tudor phrase or a piece of Tudor syntax and sliding it into a modern idiom so you don't see the join, but they are in fact talking Tudor. And the, the thing is that it shouldn't stop the reader in their tracks. Um, and it's difficult because you're going back here to a time when you, um, it, it's difficult to work out how ordinary people spoke. Uh, you're going back pre-Shakespeare. Mm, mm. And, you know, Shakespeare and the Book of Common Prayer, plus the English Bible, brought so much into the language that you always, well, I, I spent a lot of time in pursuit of individual words and phrases. Could they have been used? But in the end, the really important thing is to, to keep a congruence with what they could have thought. Um, their means of expression and the images and metaphors they use must all be congruent with the culture. They must flow from the context. You can't suddenly have them using images that come from the Enlightenment, from modern science and so on. They can't think in that way. So as long as they think like Tudors, I'm prepared to concede a little with the vernacular. With the actual language. It's interesting, I was, I was interviewing last night as part of this sort of week of Mantel celebrations. Peter Kosminski, you directed um, you know, the, the screen version. I don't know why I'm telling you, you know yes. that. Yes. <laughs> um, just to remind the audience, you know that. Um, and he was saying, well, first of all, he said very um, engagingly uh, that he was quite surprised when he was approached to do it because he is somebody who doesn't work with adaptations. He originates most of his own material. And also his work is essentially contemporary political drama. Of course, mm. he then realized a bit further into it that maybe that's why he'd been approached yes. because mm. it was a contemporary <laughs> political drama. But he said that one of the most interesting things that he learned from you was they don't know what's going to happen. Anne Boleyn doesn't know that she's going to be executed. She doesn't know there's going to be more wives. They can't see the next five they minutes. They can't see the next five minutes. Mm. That's all, we all know that on a rational level. Mm. We all understand it. How do you get that actually into the brain and down the fingers when you're writing? I think that was all done in that first 30 seconds of writing. Um, when I, I had Cromwell on the ground looking at the twine of his father's boot, the boot that had just kicked him. And during that intense close focus, there was no doubt afterwards where I was located. I was 
almost behind Cromwell's eyes. We, we were, if we had been perfectly a fit, as it were, then it would have had to be a first person narrative with all the limitations and difficulties that brings. But there's a slight overlap. It's almost as if there's a camera and I'm the camera and I'm on his shoulder. So once you are looking through those eyes, I can't tell you how it really isn't a problem not to know um, what you're walking towards once you've located yourself inside the bodies of those people. Mm. It, is, it is as visceral as that. Yes, I think it is. Um, I sometimes wonder as I type away what expressions are growing on my face and I'm really <laughs> glad no one's there to see them <laughs> because I think I, I, without necessarily moving, I do act to everything. Um, consequently, I'm completely exhausted by the end of the day. Really? You like a yes. sort of wrung out rag? Yes, yes. I, I feel that whatever I've written, I've lived. I'm sure this doesn't fit neatly into the whole business of actually publishing a book and making revisions and so forth. But that does make me want to ask you what expression was on your face when you basically typed the end <laughs> on that last day. What was going on then? Well, I'd written, uh, the book ends with a section which has just two parts. There's Mirror, which is Cromwell from his arrival in the tower right through the process to his last night. And then the final short section is light, and this is his execution. So I came to a point where I had written mirror, and light, to put it coldly, was an assembly job, because most of it was done. So I got to the end of one day, and I thought, Tomorrow's the day, tomorrow's the day I will finish. I know I can do this in one big session. But that night I did not sleep. You can imagine. It was as if all the characters from all three books were walking around in my head. And I'm asking myself, have I done right by you? Have I brought your story home? And Everything is falling away now. Just Cromwell is still alive. I got up the following morning, walked into the sitting room, and my picture of Henry VIII had fallen off the wall. <laughs> <laughs> and was balanced precariously on the skirting board. And I thought, that says it all. Cromwell has actually won. He's the last man standing. <laughs> uh, uh, if it had been Cromwell's picture that had fallen down, I would have gone up the hill to my writing place in a very different frame of mind. But it made me bound out into that morning, which was one year ago last week. Wow. Um, assemble that final chapter. Say, job done, 
I phoned my husband. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. So guess what? Early finish. <laughs> and uh, he came up to collect me. I said, I've done. And what happened then was we looked at each other and we laughed because uh, it was a laugh of incredulity because it didn't seem possible. But the next morning, then the revision began. Oh. <laughs> well, I hope between the four o'clock in the afternoon, early, so-called early finish, and the next morning, there was at least, you know, a glass of champagne or something nice, or a box of chocolates or something. Oh, it's a nice, strong cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> That's, see, that's what you do a trilogy on, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> see, writers, it's not all debauch, is it? Honest Yorkshire tea, <laughs> yes. Uh, 15.40, the tower. It's the last evening of Cromwell's life. All your life you've tramped the empty road with a wind at your back. You're hungry and your spirit is perturbed as you journey on into the gloom. But when you get to your destination, the doorkeeper knows you. A torch goes before you as you cross the court. Inside, there is a fire and a flask of wine. There's a candle and beside the candle, your book. You pick it up and find your place is marked. You sit down by the fire, open it, and begin your story. You read on into the night. At nine o'clock, 27th of July, he kneels down and makes his prayer. He had wondered how you would recognize your dead when you yourself go to judgment. But as he waits out this last night, he sees how they are visible and how they shine. They're distilled into a spark, into an instant. There's air between their ribs. Their flesh is honeycombed with light and the marrow of their bones is molten with God's grace. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>